Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I've really been looking forward to this conversation, which is going to be focused on one of my current favorite topics. We usually experience ourselves as being oneself, but we all have different characters, different kinds of parts running around inside our heads. Maybe there's a voice in you that helps keep you on track and keeps you organized and maybe even helps you succeed at work. Maybe there's another part that shows up when you get angry or frightened. And maybe there's a part that likes knowing a lot, a part that is social and playful, and another part, a bit off to the side, that represents a younger version of you. It can get pretty busy in there, and our relationship with some of those parts tends to be better than others. To help us sort through all that and achieve some semblance of unity, I'm joined by a true pioneer in the field of psychology and the creator of the Internal Family Systems Model of Therapy, Dr. Richard Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz began his career as a family systems therapist and created IFS in response to clients' descriptions of various parts within themselves. He focused on the relationship among these parts and noticed that there were some systemic patterns to the way that they were organized across clients. Dr. Schwartz is also the author of a number of books and over 50 articles focused on IFS. His new book, No Bad Parts, Healing Trauma and Restoring Wholeness with the Internal Family Systems Model, comes out on July 6th and is available for pre-order now. He's also a prominent public speaker and was invited to be part of a dialogue with the Dalai Lama as part of Europe's Mind and Life Conference back in 2016. So, Dr. Schwartz, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm good, Forrest. Great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. And as I mentioned earlier, you started out working as a family systems therapist before creating IFS. So as a kind of way of introduction for you and maybe for IFS as a whole, what were you doing and seeing just around you in the field at the time that the creation of IFS was a kind of response to? Yeah, so I was one of those sort of zealous family therapists who thought we'd found the Holy Grail and fought those psychodynamic or psychoanalytic therapists that were mucking around in the inner world were wasting their time because we could change all that by just reorganizing these external families. And I set out to prove that in about 1981, I think. I was a fresh graduate from my doctoral program in Maryland Family Therapy. And I decided to, well, we gathered together about uh, 30 bulimic kids and their families and tried to prove that the structural strategic family therapy worked and found that it didn't, actually. I could reorganize the families just the way the book said to, and these kids would keep binging and purging to my frustration. So I began asking why, and they started to teach this to me. And it was very foreign to me at the time, because they would talk about, as you say, these different parts of them, say some version of, when something bad happens, this critic attacks me inside calls me horrible names. And then that brings up a part that makes me feel young and empty and alone and worthless. And that feeling is so dreadful that the binge comes in to get me away from it. But the act of the binge brings the critic back, who's now calling me a pig on top of the other names. And that, of course, then brings back that young, empty, alone, worthless part. And so they were talking about these parts as if they had a lot of autonomy. And you know, almost like little inner beings. So I got scared at first. Mm -hmm. you know, I thought maybe these mm -hmm. kids were sicker than I thought. And then I started listening inside myself, and oh my God, I've got them too. <laughs> and some of mine are as extreme as theirs. Yeah. Then I just got curious. Mm -hmm. I learned to not keep trying to get my clients to 
fight with the critic or control the binge at some point and tried to help them just be curious in a, in a kind of mindful way, a lot like uh, what your father does, and found that these parts had a lot to tell them if they weren't fighting with them all the time. Mm. And so as I did that, just through trial and error, I, I started to learn this model. So I already was able to speak with Susan McConnell about IFS on the podcast. There are probably a good number of people who listened to that episode as well, so they might have some kind of a general familiarity with the IFS model at this point. But for people who didn't listen to that episode and maybe aren't familiar with IFS, I'd love to give kind of a brief introduction to the model that you just mentioned there. Being kind of practical about it, what is the underlying model and maybe what does an IFS session with a clinician look like? Now, almost 40 years later, we can safely say that everybody has parts and that that's a good thing, that it's the nature of the mind to be subdivided that way and that we're born with them. And they all have valuable qualities and resources to give us in our lives to help us live well, which I know is the title of your podcast. (laughs) And trauma or what's called attachment injuries, bad parenting, Mm -hmm. forces them out of their naturally valuable states into roles that may be necessary when you were very young to protect you. But if it stays that way, which they do, because they kind of get frozen in time back there, can get in your way, can cause you a lot of trouble and can, you know, look like these very pathologized diagnoses. It took a while for me to get hip to that, but once I did, I began to try and get clients to actually listen to their parts, like I said, Mm. and learn about what they're doing in there, why. And in the process of doing that, I learned that these parts aren't what they seem. They're frozen in time, often, during the trauma. They carry the emotions and beliefs that came into your system from the trauma, what we call burdens. And these emotions and beliefs, these burdens drive the way they operate. So they often get mixed up with the burdens they carry. And they, many of them protect other very, very vulnerable parts. Mm. Because they got hurt the most, we tend to try and lock away so we don't have to feel any of those feelings they carry anymore, which we call exiles. So typically, pretty much everybody has a group of parts who, before they got hurt with these playful inner children that we love because they give us a lot of delight in the world and creativity and wonder and awe. But once they get hurt or they get terrified or they feel worthless, and these are the ones often that feel those feelings the most because they're the most sensitive, once that happens, we tend to try and get away from them. And we lock them in inner basements or abysses or caves and spend our lives trying to stay away, trying to stay above them almost, and thinking we're just moving on from the memories, sensations, emotions, and beliefs from the trauma, Mm. not realizing that we're locking away some of our most precious qualities. Mm. So those we call exiles. And when you have a lot of exiles then a bunch of other parts have to leave their naturally valuable states and become protectors. And they have to protect the exiles from being triggered, but also keep them contained, protect you from the exiles. And some of them do that by trying to manage your life so that you don't get triggered and 
you mentioned a number of those common roles in the introduction. And some do that by not letting anybody close enough to hurt you or by trying to make you look great, look perfect, so no one rejects you, or try to make you achieve a lot so you get accolades to counter the worthlessness, and so on. And there's a whole lot of different protector, common protector roles. Many of them are these inner critics that we love to hate, but in general, they themselves are reasonably young and they're over-promoted. In family therapy, we used to call those mm. parentified children, children who had to take on a parental role. And when that happens, they don't know what to do but to yell at you to try and get you to behave and do what they want to keep you safe. And then some are these massive caretakers that don't let you take care of yourself. There's just a bunch. There are managers, what we call managers now, that'll keep you in your head and don't let you feel your body very much, for example. So mm -hmm. a lot of common manager roles, what they all share in common is the desire to preempt anything that might trigger the exiles. So they're big into controlling the outside world, controlling your body, controlling your appearance. And they're also very much into pleasing people in general. And that works to some degree, but the world has a way of breaking through those defenses and triggering your exiles anyway. And when that happens, it's a big emergency because you're flooded with these horrible feelings from those traumas that mm. as the exiles burst out of exile and you start to feel overwhelmed and it's hard to function and you feel like a little kid again. And to deal with that emergency, another set of parts has to immediately go into action to take you higher than those flames of, of exiled emotion or distract you until they burn themselves out. So we call them firefighters and another set of protective parts. And most all of us have those, and they're the ones that are so impulsive and make us do things. And later we wonder, how did, why did I do that? I can't believe it. Mm. They don't care about the consequences. They don't care about the collateral damage to your body or to the relationships. They just know they've got to get you away from that right now. And there's a sort of hierarchy of them. If the first one doesn't work, you go to the next one. And so addictions fall into that category a lot of the time, but dissociation or rage sometimes as a firefighter, or there's a lot of common firefighters too. Mm. And at the top of that hierarchy is often suicide. So that's a map to the territory of parts. Yeah. But the big discovery of IFS for me is in trying to, you know, get to know this inner system and being a family therapist, often I would try to have these conversations inside and it would be a a jumble because all kinds of parts would be interfering and talking. And I began getting clients to get them all to relax and separate so we can talk to one at a time. Mm. And as I had the clients move these parts to their periphery, suddenly this other person would pop out and would know how to relate to the parts in a healing way and would be a good leader. And would manifest qualities like calm and curiosity and compassion and confidence. And there are four others that begin with the letter C. So we have <laughs> what I call the eight C's of self-leadership. Yeah. So the others would be courage and creativity, clarity and connectedness. So now, 40 years later, having worked with thousands of clients and 
thousands of people using this all over the world, we can safely say that that self is in everybody, can't be damaged, and knows how to heal, both internally and externally. And that's the big mm. discovery, for lack of a better word, from IFS, that, mm -hmm. that it's there, it's just beneath the surface of these parts, such that it emerges spontaneously when people open space, and that it knows how to heal. And it's in everybody. And as people practice mindfulness, to some degree, they're accessing that. In reading descriptions that you've given in, in previous writing and your books and things and people talking with you, one of the things that I find really, really interesting that I would love to get your perspective on and like what do you think is happening there is how when you're in some kind of a clinical setting with somebody who you're working with, you're guiding them through this process, you often describe it as the person discovering their own interior, their own sense of inner knowing and getting increasingly in touch with that, that self or that self energy. And you often use language, as you've already used here during this episode, of the parts were teaching me, or I was helping them just get more clarity on their interior, as opposed to having sort of an interventionist model where the clinician is like fixing something about the client. And, th and that seems, I would just love to kind of get a sense for what that looks like in practice and sort of what that feels like during a session. Yeah, it's one of the things I like best about IFS because I come from a very interventionist family therapy background where we were telling family members what to do and what to think. Mm -hmm. And I quickly learned that that doesn't fly in this inner world. So it, it really forced me to be a good listener and to trust the self can actually figure things out and do the reorganizing that needs to happen if I can be a kind of colleague to the self or co-therapist in the inner world. I almost never have to give somebody an interpretation. I'll say, just ask in there. Ask the parts why they're doing this, and they'll tell you, mm. instead of me telling making something up about why they're doing it. So that's been a real blessing. It means that we don't have to be clever as therapists. We can trust our clients to figure things out for themselves. Mm. And how you do it, you know, we could either role play or you could actually work with a part of yours to demonstrate it to people. Sure. <laughs> Why not? Okay, I love this. Okay, good. Yeah, no, I, I mean, so some version between the two. But yeah, let's go ahead. All right, Forrest. So is there a part you'd like to work with or get to know better? Uh, yes. Um, sometimes when I'm trying to figure out the right way to do this, this is this is a high-pressure situation. I'm doing, doing it in the real here. This is great. Um, okay, so yeah, uh, sometimes when I start to feel emotionally vulnerable with somebody else, I will feel a, a part of me mm -hmm. kind of pull back mm -hmm. and get kind of high in my body. Mm -hmm. Good. Um, my voice changes a little bit. I get a little bit more higher pitched. Good. I start to get a little cognitive. I'd like to know why that's happening. Perfect. Okay. So focus on that feeling you just described and find it in your body. And you said it was, it pulls you into your head, it sounds like. Yeah, kind of here. You're pointing to your neck, right? Yeah, kind of like at the base of my neck. And as you notice it there, how do you feel toward it? In other words, do you wish it wasn't there? Do you... Do you get afraid when it happens? What do you feel toward it? There's an anxiety 
there's an anxiety experience. Feels something like that. I I don't. I'm not angry at it, but I do start to feel anxious when it starts to wake up. Okay. All right. So that makes sense that there'd be some anxiety about it, but we're going to ask the one who's anxious about it to give us a little space to get to know it. So see if the anxiety would just relax a little bit, so we can just ask it some questions. Let you be curious. Okay. So how do you feel toward it now? Um, a little sad. Sad for it, or you feel its sadness, or just check? I think I feel its sadness more. Okay. Yeah, I think it's sadness more. As you get that it's sad, how do you feel toward it? Mm, more comforting. More, I'm not mad at it for being sad. I just like feel the emotion, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I don't have a lot of, yeah, I don't think I have a lot of judgment toward it. Like I get why it's sad. You do get? I, I think so. Well, let's, yeah, get the thinking part to step back to and just see if you can get curious about why it's sad. And just see if it's ready to tell you if it wants you to know something about that. Yeah, I think I'm having a hard time separating my thinking from mm-hmm. its experience, if that okay. makes sense. Like I'm having a hard time maybe to use the language. I don't know if this is correct or not, but I'm having a hard time having that manager kind of no, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. the background yeah. a little bit. Yeah. So yeah. tell it it doesn't have to. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Ask if it'd be okay if I talked directly to this, the sad one in your throat. And, it, and it's totally okay yeah. if that's not, if it's not up for that. That feels okay? No, I think that's, yeah, that's okay. All right. We'll give that a try. So I'm going to ask some questions for us and just sort of respond from this part rather than from your thinking mind. Okay. So are you there? Are you, are you the sad part of Forrest that's in his throat? Are you willing to talk to me? Yeah. Okay. And you can kind of pull him away from situations. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so just tell me what you want me to know about yourself and why you do that and anything you want me to know about your sadness. Well, it's protective. Uh-huh. And what are you trying to protect? Yeah. I... uh I get emotional around people, mm-hmm. and sometimes that feels good, but a lot of the time it feels very intense, mm-hmm. and I don't always want that. Okay. Okay, so you kind of pull them away from people to keep the, that emotion from getting too strong and intense. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes sense. 
And is the emotion sadness or is it something else that you're trying to keep from getting too intense? Mostly sad, mostly a, a crying. Uh-huh. So your friend you might cry if you stayed in the situation. Yeah, it starts to it starts to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Okay. I don't know why, but it does. Yeah. Okay. So he said he feels anxious about you. At least that's the way he felt initially. Hmm. So what's your relationship with Forrest like, would you say? How do you get along with him in general? Does he appreciate you or does he value your protection? I think mostly. Uh-huh. Okay. So he kind of lets you do this. Yeah, mostly. He lets you protect him this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So here's a question for you. If Forrest were able to go to the sad crying parts that get so emotional around people and heal those parts so they weren't so vulnerable, would you need to do this so much? I think I'd still want to, um, but maybe a bit less. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. So you wouldn't feel as much responsibility, it sounds like, to protect him. Less. There's still a, a fear there, but it would feel more comfortable. Okay. Okay, so you have your own fear about being around people, too. Is that right? Yeah, it's very exposed. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. All of that makes sense. Anything else you want me to know before I talk to Forrest again? Just that there's a, there's a nervousness there. In you, or...? Yeah, yeah. There's a nervousness there. There's a concern about letting too much responsibility go. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah, so we're not pushing you in any way. You can keep doing this. Mm. We're just trying to get to know you and support you and offer some possibilities, but it's your choice. Okay, yeah, that feels better. Okay, good. Okay, well, it's been great to talk to you, and let me talk to Forrest again now. Okay. So you heard all that? Yeah. So how do you feel toward this part now? Um... Understanding, more yeah. more understanding, maybe a bit, bit better. Good. Yeah, that was really interesting. 
Well, thanks for being a good sport. I am so happy to. To ask you about that, to kind of ask you about what just happened, because that was, for starters, in my experience, very cool. And <laughs> not at all what I expected we'd be doing, uh-huh. but it was really, right. really cool. Um, so because that, that dialogue just happened inside of myself, I do feel a different relationship with that response, like a clearer seeing of it, more of a sense of it. I had maybe my own like thinking view of why this thing was doing what it was doing, but yeah, there was some judgment attached to that. Totally. And so what I can kind of see is how maybe I would be able to relate to this, this part or this reaction, this tendency a little bit differently in the future mm-hmm. than I had been doing in the past. Is that... Yeah. That is Part it. of what we're, yeah, okay, cool. That's like a first step in this work, yeah. So great. that was a great example. And I went to what we call direct access, where I was talking directly to the part. Yeah. Because that thinking part wouldn't step back. Yeah. So typically, if it would have stepped back, I would have had you had that conversation with the part. Mm. Uh, and you would have gotten that information and you could have been comforting to it. But because the thinking part wouldn't let us do that, I decided to talk to it directly. That's really interesting. And is that, that's a choice that you're making in the moment, depending on the person's response to to your attempt to access it? Yeah, and and the amount of time we have. Because if we'd had more time, I could have, we could have worked with the thinking part and found out why it was reluctant to leave and all that. Yeah. But I, I really wanted to get somewhere in the short time we had. Yeah, no, and I I thought that that was lovely. And I think it's telling that I kind of asked you, what is an what does an IFS session look like? And you were just like, Well, let's do one. <laughs> 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 so that was that was very, very cool. It's great you were willing to. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney Show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years, and the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show 
just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash beingwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash beingwell. My experience, I would just ask you about it as it was happening, is that because, as you can probably tell, both based off of what we just did and just like listening to me talk, I'm a pretty cognitive person. I'm pretty top down. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of intense emotional experience. Like I feel emotions very, very strongly. And it does feel like there are those thinking elements that kind of buffer me Mm -hmm. to an extent from feeling those emotions very strongly. Mm -hmm. But it did really feel like I could legitimately speak from that part. It didn't feel like I was play acting. I I didn't think I was projecting or like, you know, I was doing my best to kind of keep that out of it. Mm -hmm. And it was a very, very authentic experience. So is that in general what you find that people are actually pretty able to authentically speak from their parts? Very much, yeah, yeah. Most everybody can do that. You know, when I was fooling around back in the day, I kept thinking, wouldn't it be cool if everybody could do this? You know, with my first couple of clients where they could. Yeah. And I'd try it with another one. Oh, they can do it too, and they can do it. And, <laughs> and it turns out most everybody can do it. Hmm. I mean, there are some people whose protectors really uh, will just sabotage. They just, it's too scary to let them even try it. So that would have happened had I said, let me talk directly to that part. And your thinking part would have done the kind of role play. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't have stepped back, would have just stayed and, and just sort of talked a good game. But I could tell that wasn't happening. So I think it might have been happening. I, I think it might have gone that way about five years ago. Uh-huh. I think like five, six, seven years ago before I started doing more active work around some of these some of these parts, some of these tendencies. I, I totally think that the thinking part would have intervened in a way that would have made it very challenging to access that more vulnerable space. So it's definitely consistent with my experience. Me too, when I was your age. So <laughs> One of the things that was so present when both in that experience and in when you were first talking about IFS is also right there in the title of your new book. It's No Bad Parts. Mm-hmm. And one of the ideas from IFS that's had like the largest impact on how I think personally about myself and about psychology in general is this idea that you said in the beginning where there are these parts that are kind of, they have a role to play, mm-hmm. but then something happens to us mm-hmm. and they get put into a different kind of role. They start to assume responsibilities that you know they may or may not be well suited for. 
And each of those parts has like fundamentally good intentions out in the world, even if they're causing us to take on behaviors that become problematic to us for for some reason. Mm -hmm. And I'd love it if you could spend a little bit more time talking about that, maybe even through the lens of the example we just did together. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that was a great example because this protective part of you that pulls you away from people so you don't cry or you don't feel too much sadness said it carries a lot of responsibility and it was mm. quite reluctant to give that responsibility up at this point. Mm. No doubt you had some bad experiences being vulnerable with people. And mm. so it decided at some point, I'm just not going to let you do that anymore. Mm. Mm -hmm. And uh, has been in that role ever since. Yeah. And it could have been when you were young and yourself couldn't really protect you. And so it took on this parental role inside. And, you know, I didn't ask, but I could have. Actually, we could do that now if you'd like. If you go back to it, just ask it how old it thinks you are and just wait for the answer. Don't think of an answer. Um, it's very imagery based, and I'm getting a lot of like early adolescence. Yeah. So it thinks you're, it still thinks you're a teenager. Late middle school, early high school. Yeah. And that might well be the, t the time that it jumped into this role. But let it know you're older than that. Yeah, I could totally see that. Yeah, just let it know now that you're not that age. Tell it how old you are and, and see how it reacts to that information. There's a, there's, <laughs> there's, there's the whiff of skepticism, uh -huh. um, right. which is sort of funny. Yeah, a lot of times. I don't know if that makes sense. I don't no, know if that does. translates, but, but totally. there's a sort of, yeah. A lot of times they can't believe it. It takes them a while to, <laughs> to catch up. And it's often a big relief. Yeah, that's really fascinating. It's often a big relief to know that you're not a teenager and they, they don't have to protect this vulnerable young teenage guy anymore. Mm. So that's a lot of the reason they get stuck in these roles and with all this responsibility and they don't trust you to handle the world. And so a lot of the work is also helping them come to trust there is a self, the you who is just telling them how old you are and, and can comfort them. Yeah. They don't have to be the parent in there mm. as they trust that, that they're not alone because you're there with them they tend to, to relax and give up the responsibility. And then they can be playful and, and carefree the way they're supposed to be. Mm. So it all translates to kids in a family. You know, that's, that's the way it operates in families. When the parents abdicate and a trauma happens, then kids have to take over and take care of the parents. And, and uh, they get way older than their years mm. when that happens. Yeah, I mean, I think that all I can say is that that's extremely consistent with my experience, particularly around, and I've shared this very publicly on the podcast in the past, I don't mind talking about it, those formative experiences that you have. For me, it was with other kids. For many people, it's inside of their family system. I was fortunate to have a family system that in general is pretty healthy. Um, but my relationships with kids, particularly during that period of time that I kind of felt into there, we're, we're pretty fraught and we're not always really positive. 
And I, I can see how those parts might step into those roles to be defensive of me in a way where I felt like my emotions were were not really respected by other people or like mm-hmm. closeness was causing me suffering or whatever else. Exactly. And we didn't get to them, but I hinted at the parts that are still also stuck back there that became the exiles mm. that carry the pain, yeah. carry all the pain and want to cry and mm. that you had to you had to move away from. Mm-hmm. And this part kept you from showing them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the next steps were we to work together would be to get permission from this guy to go to those parts and witness what happened to them and how bad it was for them. Mm. And then take them, literally take them out of the past to live with you. And then we can release the extreme beliefs and emotions they carry from those times. And then they'll immediately transform into their naturally happy, light state. Mm. And then the protector can see you're not so vulnerable anymore and can relax. So that's the process in general. In my case, fortunately, I didn't have a really judgmental relationship toward that defensive part. And you right. kind of asked me during the process, how do you feel toward this part? Like, are right. you angry at this part? Or what? Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, oh, I sort of get it, honestly. Yeah. And a lot of people, they have behaviors out in the world that they get heavily reprimanded for. Right. There are a lot of pathologizing messages out there. There are people who have parts that are maybe taking actions that are more visible than my defensive parts were, which just kind of pull me out of social environments or pull me away from potential social harm. But you were talking about people having parts early on in your work that led to bulimia, to binging and purging, to like very self-harming behaviors, whatever it might be. Yeah, And it's pretty easy probably for people to feel judgmental, extremely negative, Mm self-hating, relating to some of those parts. But again, no bad parts. So how do you kind of help people balance that and move toward maybe a stance of greater compassion and understanding towards those parts of them that are acting out in those ways. Yeah, it was an, another one of those, could this really be true with this kind of a part? Mm. You know, I would mm. I would find like the bulimic part turned out to be quite protective and we could do similar work to what we did. But then I started working with even more severe kinds of conditions. And I wound up consulting, for example, for seven years to a place called Onarga Academy, which was a sex offender treatment center. And I would have those people go to the parts that did the sex offending and get curious about them. And we would learn their secret histories as to how they got stuck with the desire to to hurt vulnerability and and how protective they had, had to be when the person himself was getting offended when he was a child and so on and so on. And We've worked with murderers. We've worked with, you know, anything you can imagine, actually. And I'm here to tell you it's a radical statement, but no bad parts. Just good parts forced into extreme and sometimes quite destructive roles. And it's a tough sell in our culture and in in, in our field. Yeah, it's, it's a very tough sell. I think that maybe even for people listening, it might be a tough sell. You know, how can there be a part that, does that to a kid or does that to another person and not be kind of inherently bad. Mm -hmm. But 
just like you're saying, IFS takes an extremely depathologizing stance toward parts that can even be very, very destructive, including parts that potentially, this is you know a matter of some debate, but could potentially give rise to even very clinically significant conditions like bipolarity, schizophrenia, and so on. And we, we've worked with all that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just the idea that aspects of these conditions could be addressed without medication was pretty revolutionary <laughs> when you first started uh, doing creating IFS and doing this work. And I'm just really curious, like coming from that moment when you started exploring these ideas in the 80s up to now, where do you kind of see IFS's role inside of that broader medical model, even working with people with very extreme conditions? Well, yeah, I mean, there's validity to the DSM, the you know, the sort of Bible of psychiatry in the descriptive aspect of it. Mm. But for me, each of those diagnoses is a fairly accurate description of the cluster of parts, cluster of protectors that dominate a person mm. and give them the, those symptoms, which again is a totally different view of what it is than to say he's got this disease or this illness or this condition that he just has and is much, much more hopeful and gives people very clear ways to change it, to work with it on their own and with the therapist. So yeah, it's a tough sell, particularly in the bastions of psychiatry, although we're making inroads, I have to say. It's been a long haul. I started out in a department of psychiatry. I was really attacked from a lot of different sides. And now I went the grassroots way. You know, I went to the way of non-academic therapists. And now it's got momentum to the point where people are taking it much more seriously. And the whole psychedelic opening now yeah, totally. is proving a lot of what I've been saying because the psychedelics access a lot of self and mm. it's demonstrating that that self is just there. It just comes out. For some reason, the psychedelic MDMA or whatever it is relaxes protectors immediately. So suddenly your heart opens and mm. mm -hmm. you're in those eight C's and you mm -hmm. spontaneously start working with your parts. That Most people working with MDMA talk about how often people start without any cueing from them talking to these parts of them and helping them. So it's a, this is a kind of, after 40 years, you get some validation. So it's, it's a nice time for me. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. To add a little bit of additional detail, and you know, please correct me here if I say anything that's off base, but you're speaking to work that's being done by various groups of people, including MAPS, which does a lot of the leading research on MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and the Johns Hopkins Research Center and other research centers. Johns Hopkins is just the one that I'm most familiar with that's doing a lot of very interesting research on psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy, particularly for people who have PTSD. It's been shown clinically in some early studies to be extremely effective for helping people. I think that one of the, and now we're starting to wander into just my memory, so I could be off about one or two of these details here, but I think that one of the first groups that were really studied were combat veterans. People who came back from combat with severe PTSD. And what they found was that there was a significant decrease in symptoms after even just a couple sessions of psilocybin assisted psychotherapy, like one working session and then a couple of integration sessions afterwards. So if you're 
somebody who hears psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy and you think that we're just going crazy out here. Uh, no, it's actually extremely research-validated and is increasingly being so. And I think that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, MAPS work, is currently being fast-tracked in clinical trials as a PTSD intervention. So it, it's all very real stuff. And it's a very, very rich part of the field right now with a lot of very cool research going on. Yeah. And I'm trying to organize things so that IFS becomes at least one of the prominent maps to that territory, speaking of maps. Very cool. I think that would be lovely. It does feel like there's a natural synergy there. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about before we close today, and I've only got a little bit more time with you, is that in the subtitle of the book, you emphasize trauma. And there's both a lot of anecdotal evidence and some published research that suggests that IFS is maybe particularly powerful for people who have a trauma history of one kind or another. What do you think it is about the parts-based approach? And maybe I actually got, you know, I wouldn't describe myself as having a trauma history, but maybe I got a little taste of that in the example that, that you did with me there. What is it about that approach that makes it so effective for working with people who've had significant traumatic experiences? Yeah, well, as I said before, these parts of us get frozen in time during the traumas. And mm. the goal of a lot of trauma therapies is to help them. A lot of trauma therapies are designed to help people express that fully and maybe complete what they couldn't do back there because they were blocked. Mm. IFS is a bit different in the sense that if you access self like we did with you and mm -hmm. you're in some of those eight Cs, you can go to these parts without being overwhelmed because self mm. is still present. So people can enter these scenes in the past and witness what happened. And the witnessing is part of the healing. So if we were to have continued, I would have said, Forrest, ask this part to really let you know what happened and how bad it was for that guy. And you would have seen scenes, you would have felt the emotions, you would have felt the sensations, but you would be able to stay present during all of that. And if you started to feel overwhelmed, it's not hard to talk the parts into slowing it down and pulling back a little. And we would do that until the part said it felt fully witnessed, like you really get what happened and how bad it was now. And then I'd say, Forrest, now I'd like you to go into that scene and be with that teenage boy in the way he needed somebody at the time. And you would say, okay, I'm there. And I would have you ask him, how was it to have you there with them? And is there anything he would want you to do for him back there? And he might have gone to these peers that were so mean to you and protected you in the way you needed. And you'd do that until, until the boy felt that was enough. That's all he needed to have you do back there. And then I would have him, I would have you take him to your house or take him to a fantasy place he'd like to be in. And then he's ready to unload the feelings, the sadness in this case. And we have a ritualized way of sending it out of his body. Mm. And then he, he would be, he'd feel much lighter. He'd be wanting to play maybe. And would bring in that protector to see it didn't have to protect him anymore. So mm. people say you can't change the past, but in this inner world, you literally are changing what happened. You're changing the experience these parts had of what happened to them. Mm. And that's very healing. That's very healing. And you're also yeah. 
sort of cementing their trust in you as someone who can protect them and someone who can take care of them. Mm. So all of that is a lot of the reason why IFS is seen as so useful for trauma. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm laughing because I was, of course, kind of doing my best to more or less walk through that as you were saying it. And getting kind of a glimpse of it, not a full process, but a glimpse of it. Yeah. And I can totally see how that rewriting of the emotional narrative to put it in a very like cognitive way Mm -hmm. would be really helpful for people and really helpful for me personally. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm not as organized around my formulated questions as I would normally be for one of these. Uh, but no, just like in the, being in the experience, understandably, I think, understandably. But, but in the experience of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it just is, it's a very healing way to approach those emotions, I think. Yeah. And to recognize and, and give appreciation for the experiences that you've had. Exactly. And it's counterintuitive in the sense that we're all told by everybody around us to just let go and move on and don't look back. And so we spend our lives trying not to look back. And as a result, these parts feel very much abandoned. Mm. You know, the Marines have this motto, no man left behind. And we're leaving all kinds of our little men or boys behind. That's a wonderful reflection. It's a very sweet kind of mental picture that you could draw about that. And I also think it's a wonderful note to kind of end our conversation here today on. So, Doctor, thanks so much for doing this. This has, you know, obviously been very helpful for me personally. <laughs> and I really hope that people listening kind of got the value of this approach and were maybe able to see reflected inside of my own experience how it can be very helpful for people. Great. Well, I appreciate your your being vulnerable like that, Forrest. I think it's a big service to your to your listeners. Well, thank you. And to me for making my presentation. Thank you. I really, really appreciate that. So today I had the wonderful and truly very unique experience of speaking with Dr. Richard Schwartz about IFS therapy. We did something on this episode that we haven't really fully done in the past. We've kind of flirted with it, but we've never really fully gone there, which is we did kind of some live therapy. We got pretty darn close to the real thing, I would say, inside of my own experience. And it was certainly pretty vulnerable to do that. I hope people found it helpful, maybe, inside of their own process to see somebody go through those experiences. It was pretty exposed, but I am glad that we did it together. And I think it would have been hard to describe what IFS is like using sort of hypothetical language, because it is such a rich modality that is focused on contacting this complex constellation of parts that lives inside of each person. And because we all have different parts, it's tough to generalize what IFS therapy looks like. At the beginning of the conversation, Dr. Schwartz highlighted some of the parts that tend to show up in people. We might have manager parts, like I have a pretty strong manager that's focused on keeping things logical and cognitive and so on. Then we have these kind of firefighter parts that leap in with soothing behaviors of different kinds, maybe including things like dissociation. Then we have defensive parts. We found a defensive part for me, that kind of retracting in the head or in the base of the throat part that pulls me out of vulnerable social connection with other people. That makes it feel kind of sad and scary inside of my experience, if I go there with somebody else, maybe based off of experiences that I had socially with other kids when I was much younger. 
One of the things that was so fascinating about it for me in terms of my experience of it was how those parts are really fixed in time. That defensive part is effectively the same age right now, or it perceives me as being the same age right now, as it was when it first came along. So it, it's sort of permanently 12. And part of the process is going back in and reminding these parts that you aren't 12 anymore, you aren't five anymore. You're a different person now than you were back then whenever you had those painful experiences. And that's part of the reason that Dr. Schwartz highlighted that IFS can be such an effective intervention for people who have a trauma history, for people who've undergone incredibly challenging experiences when they were younger, because you have this new opportunity to recontact the parts that were, in a manner of speaking, going through those experiences. And now today, with newer resources, with a new sense of self, it's possible to rewrite those stories and reconstruct those emotional narratives, much as I got a taste of when Dr. Schwartz sort of led me through that process of contacting the younger self being a defensive presence for it when it goes through those painful experiences, and then having the opportunity to reconnect with it in a different way. So I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. It was really helpful, as you probably saw, for me personally. And if you're interested in learning more about IFS or maybe finding a clinician, I've included a link to the IFS Institute's website in the description of today's podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. If you'd like to support us in other ways, we're on Patreon, patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and receive a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.